How effective is your digital advertising? As a recognized leader, AdTaxi offers customized solutions to drive consumer traffic to your website, to generate high-value leads, and to increase revenue. To learn more, visit AdTaxi.com. The following contains language that, while it may be completely appropriate for candid discussions of bank heists, car chases, penal codes, betrayal, firearms, lying, corruption in the Oval Office, love, and larceny, it may not be suitable for more delicate audiences. You're listening to Crime Beat, a behind-the-scenes podcast of fascinating true crime stories. This is Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. In his 30s, Emil Dinzio was the man. Ask any FBI guy. If there was a bank and it had some small vulnerability, Emil Dinzio could exploit it. In his 50s, after serving his sentence for the biggest bank heist in U.S. history, not so much. As they say, Father Time is undefeated. We all lose our fastball. My name is Keith Sharon. I'm a reporter for the Southern California News Group based in Orange County. In 2003, I wrote a 10-part series for the Orange County Register about the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States when seven guys from Youngstown tried to steal $30 million from President Nixon. Then I wrote a screenplay based on the same material. I have been obsessed with this burglary for almost 20 years. This is Episode 7 of Stealing Nixon's Millions, Glory Days. If you've never heard the phrase, piss in your pocket, keep listening. Actress Rachel Taylor, who plays Harry Barber's really cool girlfriend in the film Finding Steve McQueen, will explain the whole thing. But before we get to the movie, there's more burglary I have to tell you about. And I'll share with you what President Richard Nixon's supporters think of our podcast. First the burglary. You remember 1992, right? That was the year that brought us both these number one hits. I'm Too Sexy for My Shirt by Right Said Fred and Baby Got Back by Sir Mix-A-Lot. What a year. Yeah, it wasn't a great year for Emil Dinzio either. On Memorial Day weekend, May 1992, Emil put together a crew to knock over a suburban bank in the Steel Creek neighborhood of Charlotte, North Carolina. The name of that financial institution? The United Carolina Bank. Does that sound familiar? 20 years earlier, Emil and his crew had cut through the roof of the United California Bank in Laguna Niguel. So there he was on the fateful night in 1992. Emil on the roof, cutting his way toward the vault. Here's the problem. The FBI was on to him. They had tailed him from his home near Youngstown to this little bank in North Carolina. They let him crawl up on the roof, and then, in the midst of the burglary, they pounced. The bank later said there was $272,000 in the vault, and only great work by the FBI prevented them from a catastrophic loss. Emil was sentenced to 46 months in federal prison in Loretto, Pennsylvania. That's when the story got weird. Emil Dinzio sat in that cell for two years, pissed off about the length of his sentence, which he thought was far too long. Hell, he didn't even steal anything. So in 1994, he filed a lawsuit. Are you sitting down? Against the bank he had tried to burglarize. Emil Dinzio sued United Carolina Bank for $15 million. His contention? He said the bank had overstated the amount in the vault. He said they were trying to make his burglary attempt look more serious than it really was. In one of the rare interviews of his life, Emil told the Charlotte Observer that the 15 million was just a number. I'd be happy with a couple million, he said. Who wouldn't be? Emil Dinzio's lawsuit was not successful. Unless, of course, he was trying for publicity. He became known around the world as the robber who sued the bank he was trying to rob. Of course, we all know he was a burglar, not a robber. 
He got headlines in the Weekly World News and the Chicago Reader under News of the Weird. Like I said, he lost his fastball. That makes me think of Bruce Springsteen again. Remember his good friend who could throw that speedball by you, make you look like a fool boy? All you're left with is boring stories in a roadside bar. Glory days. Well, they'll pass you by. Glory days. In the wink of a young girl's eye. Glory days. Glory days. 46 months after he failed to knock over the United Carolina Bank, Emil Dinzio was out of prison. And seven months after that, in October of 1996, he couldn't stop himself. It was never determined which story exactly Emil and his brother James wanted to break into. It was October 9th, 1996. Emil and James traveled to East Greenbush, a town in upstate New York about 10 miles outside Albany. Police officers Glenn Rauch and Daniel Keegan got a tip that someone was casing the stores in the Shop and Save Plaza. So the cops were sitting there watching the storefronts when Emil and James arrived in a white van. Rauch and Keegan must have been in disbelief when they saw two guys in their 60s get out of the van carrying a canvas bag into the woods behind the stores in the plaza. Of course, Emil and James were carrying burglary tools. The cops went into the woods and confronted the two old burglars. That's when James took off running. Officer Rauch caught James, who was nearing his seventh decade on this earth. What Rauch didn't consider was how close these brothers were, literally. While Rauch was trying to arrest James, Emil grabbed the officer from behind. In the scuffle, Emil took Rauch's gun. The brothers put a jacket over Rauch's head and guided him through the woods to a culvert where they hid. Remember, Rauch had a partner. Keegan had called for backup and the cops were searching the woods behind the shop and save. The Dinzio brothers could hear the cops getting closer and closer. That's when Rauch cried out for help. James, who now had the gun, pointed it at Rauch's head. Here's the thing about the Dinzio brothers. They were burglars, not killers. Officer Glenn Rauch took the gun away from James, and both brothers were arrested. It was their last day of freedom together and they didn't even get a chance to burgle anything. The Dinzio brothers were charged with robbery, weapons possession, and kidnapping, among other things. James died of cancer in prison. Emil was released in 2018, and so far that we know, he hasn't tried to knock over any more banks. When this podcast started, I exchanged Facebook messages with Emil's daughter, Melissa. I tried to convince her to put Emil in a tuxedo and send him out to Hollywood for the movie premiere. So far, she's not been able to convince him to participate. Harry Barber, Emil's nephew, getaway driver, and the man whose story was used for the new movie Finding Steve McQueen, said he's also not going to participate in the movie festivities. I talked to him in February. I invited him to the premiere... He doesn't want to. Oh well. Since this podcast began, the fan response has been great. As I record this, Crime Beat is now heard in 54 countries and territories around the world. Shout out to everyone listening in Brunei, Belgium, and Bangladesh. I have to tell you about one particular listener interaction I've had. I got fan mail from a guy named William Barabalt. His bio says his friends call him Bill. Okay, when I said fan mail, that was a bit of an exaggeration. Since 2014, Bill Barabalt has been the president of the Nixon Foundation, which raises funds for some programs at the Nixon Library in Yorba Linda. That's where I went for research when I was listening to the Nixon White House tapes. It's a beautiful place. If you ever get the chance and you're feeling nostalgic for an era in history when the president resigned in disgrace... You should check it out. The board of directors for the Nixon Foundation has a mission statement written on its website. Quote, to oversee and execute ideas and initiatives in the spirit of President Richard Nixon. Isn't that what got people in trouble in the 1970s? Anyway, a letter was sent to my boss's boss, executive editor Frank Pine. 
The letter said that I have uncritically purveyed demonstrably false information. Specifically, there has never been any evidence that Nixon received illicit money from the milk farmers or Jimmy Hoffa. I wrote a nice letter back to Mr. Barabalt inviting him to come on this podcast. We could discuss how the lawyer and general manager representing milk farmers pleaded guilty to criminal conspiracy charges and went to prison. Or we could discuss the Chicago Tribune headline, Nixon's Hoffa Pardon Has an Odor. So far, he's declined my invitation. His letter also claimed that this podcast agreed with Emil Dinzio's assertion that he stole $12 million from the president. I invited him to re-listen to episode three, in which we looked at how implausible it was that Dinzio's crew actually made off with Nixon's money. Keep those letters coming. I'll discuss this heist with anyone who will listen. For now, though, we'll take a little pride in being the podcast Nixon's people don't want you to hear. And now a couple of words about other things we do here at the Southern California News Group. At the Orange County Register, we'll keep City Hall honest, corporations accountable, and report on local sports, events, and issues in your community. Accurately and objectively. And that's worth paying for. To subscribe, call 1-877-469-6133. That's one 877 Four six nine six one three three. Throughout this season of Crime Beat, we've counted down the top bank heist movies of all time. In the next episode, we'll tell you which movies the fans picked. We're going to poll people at the premiere of Finding Steve McQueen. Feel free to send us your favorites on social media. For this episode, we're going to make an addition to our bank heist list with a fairly sizable asterisk. Ocean's Eleven. We disqualified that film from the main list because the heist at the heart of the movie is in a casino vault, not a bank. But some astute Crime Beat fans let us know we're taking our rules a little too seriously. Remember Don Cheadle's character, Basher? He gets busted as he uses explosives to, yes, get into a bank. And our favorite thing about that movie is it takes nothing seriously except for delivering a good time. So why exclude it? After all, it has one of the great casts of any movie so far in the 21st century. And like our story of the biggest bank heist in U.S. history, it's about burglary, not people getting hurt. Oh, and that bank scene in Ocean's Eleven? Director Steven Soderbergh, who doubled as his own cinematographer in that movie, makes an appearance. He's listed as vault bombing thief to show that he's a triple threat. Don't you just love the movie business? One of the amazing things about our story's 16-year journey from newspaper article to movie screen is to see how Hollywood shaped the story. Recently, I got to sit down with Rachel Taylor, who plays Molly Murphy in the film, and director Mark Steven Johnson. Rachel is best known as Trish Walker from the Netflix series Jessica Jones. She was also in the original Transformers movie. One note about this interview, if you only know Rachel Taylor from her roles in film and television, you may be surprised to hear her accent. She was born in Tasmania, which is a little island off the southern tip of Australia. Mark Stephen Johnson was the screenwriter for Grumpy Old Men with Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. He directed Ghost Rider and Daredevil. Here's my interview with both of them. Be warned, they do mention a few spoilers from the movie. But if you're caught up with this podcast, you already know the story anyway. So I'm going to start with a story. Harry Barber pulls off the biggest bank heist in the history of the United States. He walks away with a duffel bag full of $12,000. He flies back. He starts a new life in a little town called Brookville, Pennsylvania. Gets a new name. They call him J.B., John Baker. He meets a girl. Her name is Marlene Brady. I talked to her, the real Marlene Brady, in right at the end of 2002, not long before she died. And I asked her, what was it like to have a boyfriend who was a fugitive? And she said, it was the best time of my life. And I, <laughs> and I thought Harry was worried 
He hadn't seen her in 22 years. He was worried that she would hate him because of what he had put her through. So, Rachel, my question to you, <laughs> question number one, what's it like to fall in love with a liar? In my, in my personal life or in, in, my, in my movie life? Um, well, I know in your movie life you've done it. Yeah, in my, yeah, in my movie life. Um, you know, it's kind of an interesting question because I, one of the things that I really liked about the film and about um, the screenplay is that on one hand he, he is a liar, and he's, but he's also the most, one of the most truthful men that um, she's ever met. And I like that kind of bigger theme question in the film, that it's kind of um, about identity in a way. Like, you know, how much is he Harry and how much is he, is he John Barber? And, you know, where is the line of where you define someone based on, on what they've done before? Is it, is it, you know, their past? Is that the significant component of who they are in relationship with you or who they are as a character? Or is it, um, you know, how they treat you from the moment that you've met them? And I think... You know, in the case of how Molly feels feels about John, it's kind of both. I think she's really angry at him and really disappointed, and he, he has deceived her, but in other ways, he also hasn't. Um, I think she, even at the very end of the movie, I think she has a very deep affection for him. I, I, and I kind of had asked myself, so uh, the moment after the credits roll, that he's kind of, you know, being driven off in the cop car and he ends up in jail, you know, how does she feel about him a week from the end of the movie? How does she feel about him a, a month into his sentence for, you know, bank robbery? Mm. And I think probably, um, and, and I'm not saying this is how, um, what was her name? Marlene. How Marlene maybe felt about, about Harry, but I think how Molly would have felt about him is probably still quite fondly. Um, but that's just how I kind of approached her. When I was talking to her 22 years later, she said, Tell him I said hello, almost like with a longing um, for him. So I'm guessing that tension is what you liked. Yeah, that's what that's what got me excited about the movie, to be honest, because it is, you know, uh, you know, clearly one of the most interesting bank, you know, burglaries of all time, and, and that's that's one half of the story, but the other half is this love story. And that's what got me excited was, you know, a, a guy sitting a girl down in a diner and saying, I'm not who you think I am, and telling the story in flashbacks. That got me really, really excited to see the story and um, to see what's going to happen to these two and to track their relationship throughout. So every once in a while, we come back to the diner and track where they are. And it goes from outrage, first disbelief, and yeah. then outrage. And then slowly, you, then you get fascinated by the story, mm. you know, and uh, eventually it becomes them holding hands over the counter and realizing she's forgiving him and um, realizing that of all these different people he's been in his life, this is who he really is. Um, I'll tell you another story that I found long after I had done all this stuff, long after I'd written the screenplay and written the newspaper articles, I got a hold of um, Marlene's daughter or niece. I think it's Marlene's niece. And she told me that when Marlene was dying, she was in the hospital and asked, can you get a hold of Harry? And so she did. And Harry said, can you buy a dozen roses? And she was buried with roses from Harry Barber. Oh, oh goodness. <laughs> oh, God. What are you doing to us? Oh, goodness. Oh, that's, so that's episode five of the podcast. Oh, my goodness. So let's, let's lighten it up just a little bit. If... If you were a fugitive, either one can answer this question. Would you have to tell someone? Are you the kind of person? I just love that question. That's one of the other big kind of themes and questions in the movie that I love, which is that he has been on the run for this amount of time, but he wants her to know him. He wants to live truthfully. And I kind of, um, I think that's sort of an interesting question, isn't it? Do we need people to know who we really are? Does that kind of quiet our soul in a way, or is that some is that some kind of balm when people kind of understand us? Personally, I just fake it. I just keep going. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Well, you're an actress, well, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I could. What about you? Me? No, I'm the world's worst poker player. Right. Everything. I get the the rash up the neck and everything. <laughs> So one day, yeah, one day you're confessing. 
Yeah. Yeah, me too. No, I'm convincing day one. Yeah. Absolutely. Can't sleep at night. Nope. No. Harry said, Harry told people in Brookville, in real life, that he never had an easy night. All eight eight years, he was free. And he said he was looking over his shoulder the whole time, that it it weighed on him horribly to to have the secret. Yeah, we reference that, that scene in the diner. Is it always like that? Yeah, is it always like that? And he he says, yeah, it's always like that. When he hears um, He hears a siren out in the street, and he turns and looks, and for a minute, like, do I have to run? Is they coming for me? You know, he's been yeah. doing that for years and yeah. years. That's why he just can't take it anymore. That was a hard um, uh, or an important question as the character as well. From Molly, like, how did she miss that? You know, yeah. they've been together for um, for seven, was it seven, yeah. seven years, yeah. I think? Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's this one moment where before Harry sits her down in the diner and tells her... Um, who he really is, this moment outside the theatre, which is one of my favourite um, mm. scenes in the film, where you get this sense that he is like one inch away from maybe telling her right then. Yeah. Um, it's a really was, sweet moment. Yeah, I is. envision he was like that a lot. Yeah. Over, over the years. Because he, as he told me, it doesn't, because you burglarize the bank doesn't make you a bad guy. Right. I think people think you're a bad guy, like literally a bad guy. Well, but... and that's and that's the thing that I know that you make a point of as well. Uh, that was a really important part of the script that we always I always held on to. Was um, there's a key moment where things get very intense during the robbery, and one of the guys just got the gun, and he's talking about Ray, and he's talking about I'll, if that's a cop, I'm taking him out. And you see Enzo, you know, and who just like you know the the person he's based on said, Hey, we're not we're not you know we're not killers that's not who we we're are burglars right we're not even bank robbers we're right. bank burglars and there's right. a huge difference to that you know one you're robbing a bank one you're sticking people up and saying get on the ground and that's a completely different character um and so i, I like that distinction i like that these people not, aren't necessarily and, you know, and we actually we, you know we played up a lot about the knicks and how much they hated knicks and everything else too right. and it's like they're in a way they were kind of in a weird way in their you know kind of a noble thing they were doing, like we're going to rob from the biggest crook in the world, you know, as versus going out and robbing poor people in a in a grocery store, you know what I mean, holding people up in the bank and saying, give us your purse, and people didn't deserve it, they felt like this guy actually did. So He's a, he's a pretty good villain, isn't he? Yeah, he's a great villain. He really is. He is, because I understand that guy, you know? I understand that kind of Robin Hood mentality in a way that he felt. Right. And I know in the real life characters, you know, too, he was great in his community. People looked up to him. Right. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. Harry befriended the chief of police in yeah. the little town yeah. that's another thing in the movie you do it a little bit where he's everywhere he goes he's surrounded by cops yeah like yeah um, was Mar- Marlene's father was the sheriff correct? no, no Marlene's that. sister twin sister Darlene was on the police force that's what it and was. his best friend chief sheriff John Dinger uh, <laughs> was his buddy and he remodeled the bank, and they gave him the that. keys yep. on, on a Saturday. Um, he he lived in the theater uh, above the the old theater in town, and uh, kind of revitalized things. This was he was a one man revitalization project in the little town. It's it's very funny for me when I go back and look at you know because so much of this movie is true, you know, and of course we have our fun with it, our creative license, and we. You know, uh, adding a lot of comedy to it and, and everything else, but a lot of every, even the smallest details are they're still right on. Right. You know, you like because I forget sometimes. Wait, did he really live above the theater, or is that just you know? No, but really, he did. he did. Yeah, he did. And he was proud of that. Yes. He called it his penthouse. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to live above the theater. <laughs> yeah. Rachel, does a love story help a heist movie, or does a heist help a love story? <laughs> I think a love story helps a heist movie. You know, I, films have to have heart, and I think this film has a big, tremendous heart. You know, I, I don't. Um, I think when I when I really fall in love with the movie, or, or even um, like a movie, it's relationship that is is what gets me. It's who that who you know who someone is to someone else and what they mean to someone else. I think, um, I think in life as well, I think we're driven by relationship, you know? Um, well, yeah. and I've talked to you about this before without the love story. I don't think we have a movie. No, uh, there, it, there wouldn't have been 
a wide interest yeah. because th there is a heist, but we've seen a heist. Yes, we've seen a lot of heists. Right. Yeah. That's what attracted you, right? Absolutely. It was always about the love story, always. You know, and when people ask me, like, tonally, even though it's not as wild as this, but we always talked about true romance and, you know, movies that started off with this very kind of quirky love affair, and you become so invested in them. You, and what I loved about this also, which was so different, is that every heist movie is the same. Will they get away with it? That's what it's always about. Right. Our movie opens up, you know, eight years later. Right. You know, we know we got away with it. So they're like, okay, so where's the tension? The tension is this. Right. It's the relationship. It's what is she going to do when he tells her who he is? So a whole different way to go, which I thought was really interesting. You might be a good screenwriter. <laughs> <laughs> I've written a few. Yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah. Uh, you may be far too young to know Richard Nixon. I, I do know Richard Nixon. I'm, I, I wouldn't, um, I'm not sure I'd pass a test as an <laughs> Aust Australian actress. Right. <laughs> um, but I, I, I do know I do know him. Tricky and I, Dick. And I, a tricky dick. And right. I, I looked him up and watched a couple of movies and a couple of documentaries uh, in preparation uh, for this film because I wanted, you know, even though uh, it doesn't impact Molly directly, I wanted a little bit of context um, to growing up in that era. Um, and just, uh, and I watched, um, it's on HBO, it's a really great um, documentary about the release of all of his kind of White House, final release of all of his White House tapes, which is really horrifying. Which it's horrifying. I've listened to, I went to the Nixon it's, Library and listened to them for this, and we have a little excerpt yeah. in one of the podcasts yeah. about it. Wow. I think it's important to kind of uh, revisit the Nixon years, given our... Current. current state of affairs not to go into that oh she much. went there oh not to go into that but I, I can really, of worms yeah. oh boy but I really watched them and I was like yeah. oh my god wow okay yeah. no we've we, you've never heard the names you know the words Nixon Watergate like you have lately you know you hear it all yeah. the time every day you turn, you turn on the news and not since Watergate not you know Right. Not since Nixon and words of you know hearing the word impeachment and it's made this movie incredibly topical so I have a theory that Woodward and, Woodward and Bernstein, the reporters from the Washington Post, did a great job of explaining what happened after Nixon decided to break in the Watergate Hotel. Mm. I think our story is the motivation for that. Mm. I think, now this could be a little tinfoil hat time for me, but <laughs> why would Nixon, who was ahead in the polls and popular and doing well, why would he have to break into that, the Democratic headquarters? Maybe he thought the Democrats were breaking into his bank. Maybe because Jimmy Hoffa was involved and he was, he was a notorious Democrat. Maybe he thought, they busted in my bank, so I'm going to get them. And it's, it's not a huge leap to think, maybe this triggered, maybe seven guys from Youngstown, Ohio changed the world. Changed the course of the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so... Anyway, transition. Rachel, what's it like when a movie's about to open and you're in it? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I mean, it depends how I feel about the film. You know, if it's something that I'm, I'm proud of and, and a story that I, um, you know, I'm proud to be a part of telling. And I, I really am with this one. Um, we saw the film play to a French-Italian audience in um in monaco and they loved the film and they and you've got the kind of barrier of the film playing with subtitles in that case and you kind of go like oh the joke's gonna land because it's a very funny film as well um and they totally did and people loved the film and um just recently you know mark um and our producer anthony did a screening and my husband saw the film and he loved the film and was just so swept away by how um uh, staggering the true story is, but also how moving and how heartfelt it is and how funny it is. Um, so in the case of this movie opening, I'm really excited for people to see it. Do um, you have any rituals you go through before opening a movie? No, I do you don't. pray? Do you? <laughs> <laughs> I, should do you we? have rituals? <laughs> I was gonna. I'm gonna ask you next. <laughs> just, Maybe just, I should. You, you've <laughs> had this. You've had opening nights uh, all across the spectrum. Huge movies, smaller movies. What do you do on opening night? What do you think? Well, it depends on the mood. I mean, the, the, 
the good and the bad news about when you make a little movie is you don't have as much money to play with <laughs> to make the movie. So this is a small movie. This is a five million dollar movie. So it's the it's the smallest movie I've ever made. But it also takes the pressure off. You know what I mean? It's like you make a movie like Ghost Rider and you open up to fifty two million dollars. And instead of like really celebrating, you're just like, thank God. You oh. know what I mean? It's just like you're just so relieved that you didn't like you know bust everybody. Well, is the pressure so, on for like that opening weekend and the, the, not some, the, no, not for me, not on this one so much because it's a yeah. smaller film. It's a smaller release. Oh yeah, I know this it's, time, it's but I'm in on Ghost on Ghost oh, Rider. Ghost Rider for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible pressure. Right. You know, and so something like this is more like I just want people to see it. I just want people to have fun with it. Right. You know, in whichever way they do it, whether in the theater or they see it on VOD or streaming, whatever. I just want people to see it and enjoy it and and, and uh, discover it. You know what I mean? That's kind of a new way. Yeah. Uh, it's the way now. Right. Do you think bigger? More? More people can see it? Like it, the, the access is greater? No, but I think it's just everything has changed so much. Unless you're making a huge tentpole film, mm-hmm. you know, or a tiny, really prestigious art house film. Th- those are the two choices. Everything else is pretty much VOD now, you yeah. know? And it's great because everyone's going to see it, you know, and it used to be like you always wanted that big release, but it's just not the way that the business is anymore. Right. I think back to the first thing I ever wrote, which was Grumpy Old Men, and, and that movie was, you know, two old guys ice fishing, fighting over a girl. That movie cost $30 million in 93. That's right. a $60 million movie right now. Can you imagine? You would never spend that now. You know, that kind of money is a, is a very big, that's a lot of money for a comedy, you know? So everything's changed. Right. Whereas inflation, everything has risen up the cost, not for movies. Movies are, you've got, you know, the 10 and under movies, and then you've got the $150 million movies. Right. You know, it's, it's a different world now. So. I guess there's good things and bad things about it. As soon as yeah. you said that about Grumpy, then those were the movies that I grew up on. That yeah, me too. Kind of yeah. new, I guess, that mid-budget. Mid yeah. Those are the reasons why I kind of wanted me to too. make The movies. Ruthless People yeah. and all these fun comedies. And, right. But those are gone now. You know, there's, there's a couple sneak through, and usually they have Kevin Hart in them. But everybody else is like, Farrell. Just, yeah. 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 But like a movie like, like Grumpy, it you know, cost 30 and it made 70, and that was great. You right. know, that was a hit. Mm. But now they want everybody wants a billion dollars. They don't want a hundred million dollars. <laughs> you know what I mean? They want... They want uh, they want much more. So I, I was going to ask you both a question about your personal journeys. Uh, I'm guessing that that movie changed your life. Yeah, good. There was a day when when you didn't feel you had made it and you hoped you would make it. Yeah. And then there was a seventy million dollar movie with your name on it. Yeah. Do you remember? Is there a moment? Is that was there a day or was there a? Oh yeah. Tell me, um, tell me about that. It was, uh, I was working, I, I mean, when I sold it, because I was broke. You know, I was always broke. You know what that's like, <laughs> trying to, you know, I, I didn't have, I didn't know anyone here. And I moved out here from Minnesota, a small little river town, and was writing and toiling and trying to make it. And I was working as an assistant at Ryan Pictures and uh, trying to get people to read Grumpy, which I wrote in two weeks, literally two weeks, 10 pages a day, you know, and then a couple of days edited, and that was it. And I was writing about home where I'm from, and, and um, I couldn't get anyone to read it. And uh, one day, um, my wife at the time said, somebody I work with at a hospital, his cousin used to be an agent. Somebody I Sorry. work with <laughs> at, the hospital, at the hospital, his cousin, cousin used to be, be an, an agent. agent. That was my big connection to Hollywood. And so I sent it to him, said, hi, my wife works with your cousin at the hospital. Would you please read my screenplay? <laughs> That's an and he was just like, story. oh, I don't want, his name is, was Richard Berman. And so, but he was on his desk, he was going to throw it in the trash, and he just kind of glanced, and he was like, oh, that's kind of funny, kind of interesting. And before you know, he read the whole thing, and he gave it to John Davis, who was a big producer, who gave it to Warner Brothers, and they bought it for $300,000. Like that. Yeah, and I, I was that's literally making moment. eight bucks an hour. Yeah. <laughs> that's and a moment. They had a little going away party for me in my cubicle at Orion, and I'll never forget Mark Platt, we still laugh about it, who was the head of Orion was walking and what's going on? I go, Mark sold a screenplay to Warner Brothers. He's like, why didn't we read that? Right, exactly. You're working <laughs> we, there. Yeah. And uh, it's like, I tried. Nobody would read it, you know, because everybody had What year was that? Oh, God. That would have been 90, I think. 90, 91. Incredible. So it changed everything. You know, like that one phone call of we sold your script. Tell me about your change from... Oh, it's nowhere near as good as that story. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's sort of different as an actor. You know, it all hinges on like one audition. You don't sit and toil away and 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 have to generate as well. Um, I mean, of course, like I have always and still work hard on auditions and prepare for them and think about them. But I don't sit down for three weeks and <laughs> and do character prep on a job that I haven't got yet. You know. Mm. Um, but I guess, funnily enough, it was a um, Sydney, uh, I'm from Australia, and I moved from Tasmania to Sydney um, 
uh, went through a, a phase where because of the tax incentives, there was a ton of like small American projects that were shooting in Sydney. Um, and I couldn't get arrested in, in local television in, in Australia for whatever reason. I was trying and auditioning and I had been an extra. This is when I, I was about 16 or 17. Um, but Peter Bogdanovich had an um, ABC telly movie um, about uh, Natalie Wood that was shooting in Sydney. And I think um, at the last minute they realised that they needed to cast um, a bunch of the supporting characters as Australians. Because to get the tax, the tax incentive, you, you have to have a certain number of Australian players in the production. Um, and I played uh, Natalie Wood's um, best friend. And that was the, the first time that I'd been on a, a movie set. was wow. with Peter Bogdanovich. Wow. Um, Great start. Yeah. And he was the full... What year, um, what year was that? 2000, maybe? 2002? Something like that? 2000? And that, he's a legend. Yeah, and he was the full Hollywood bit as well. He had like the cravat, like the neckerchief thing, <laughs> yeah. and had like he wouldn't. He drank out of like a real cup, not like a to-go cup. <laughs> um, it was really, it was amazing. It was like a real Hollywood star. Wow. No one else has done that since. Did I you worked. keep working after that? Then pretty uh, much. Then after that job, I started working in Australia, and I worked in Australia for about four or five years. And I was about twenty-one or twenty-two when I came to LA to kind of try. What's the difference between working in Australia and working here? The money. <laughs> the money is really None, different. Yeah. Versus a lot. None versus, versus some. a lot. Some yeah. a lot more. Yeah. You know? It's really. Um, I don't know. It's a shame. A, a lot of. I mean, it, on one hand, that's the reason why there's so many Australian actors here. I think, but mm. it's very hard to make a living as an actor in Australia um, doing local television. They're just not paid very well. Even if you're on television six, seven, eight, nine months out of the year, you have to have like a, you know, second job to supplement your income, Wow. which is unfortunate. I think that's changing a little bit, but I remember when I, I was there. I, Were you on Neighbours? I wasn't on Neighbours. I was on, <laughs> Everybody I was else on was. The, I was on the bad version of Neighbours. I was on a show called Headland, uh, and when it came out, they called it Dead Bland. <laughs> oh, no. And we just said, ah, oh, okay. <laughs> this, show, this show is probably not going to work. And it was cancelled. Very quickly, what's the secret to an American accent? Oh, you have to do really boring homework. It's, you have to do the most boring homework. Give, give me it's a so word, much work. Give me a word that would define the difference between... Okay. I mean, you've probably had to work this out. Yeah. So if I say your shoes, for example, if in my script it says the two words, your shoes, I'll go and I'll write it out, um, Y-I-R-S-H-O-O-Z-Z. So then in my head, when I read it aloud, it'll look like your shoes. Wow. It's You're really giving away boring. your secret right it's there. Really no, that's it's actually secret. really interesting. Yeah. You have one of the best accents ever oh, I've ever heard. You. It's, it's flawless. I, it's because I write it out. I write my whole script out in, and it's turned me into a terrible speller. So, like, I'll go to text a friend and I'll spell it the <laughs> fake American. Your, your shoes. Like, are, are you coming will look like uh, capital R, Y, E, W, C, U, M, I, N, G. So everyone thinks I'm really stupid. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, before this film, did you know who Steve McQueen was? I did. Yeah, I did. Give me some thoughts about Steve McQueen, because we've talked about Steve McQueen and how cool he is. He's just the coolest. Yeah. He's so cool. And, the, I mean, Paul Newman was also really cool, but he was the more rebellious kind of, um, I don't know, he was mm -hmm. the tougher one. Steve McQueen was mm -hmm. the kind of tough, bad, the bad, the bad guy boy. version of the two. Yeah. Right. Um, what did you think of Travis and trying to play that? <laughs> he was so funny. <laughs> oh, I love Travis and I loved working with him. He was so um, generous and warm um, and warm to me. And he is, you know, not exactly known for his comedy, but Travis is really, really funny. And mm -hmm. he's really funny in this movie. Um, he makes really kind of quirky choices and very. unexpected choices and he's very unafraid as did you actor. find that hard when he would go off and just do something bonk or you're like okay he did just like you know what i mean because you can't prepare for what he's going to do sometimes no but it's great because you can't fake it you have to be listening yeah 
it kind of shakes you up. You have an idea as an actor about how you want the scene to go or the scene to look, but if you've got someone who goes rogue, like tra- Travis goes rogue, and he can be quite silly in, in, yeah. in places, it keeps you on your toes. And he was going rogue all the time? Uh, a lot, yeah, but, <laughs> but in a good way. You know, I mean, it, it, was a, it, it was a really interesting take on it, and, and I encouraged it, and he ran with it. And it was basically, you know, the, the, it was a very childlike way to play that character, you know, he's a very kind of simple, very, you know, so a lot of guys would try to be cool, but it's like a five-year-old trying to be cool. Right. You know what I mean? I mean, that's the way I always saw it. He's like a little kid, a little kid trying to be Steve McQueen, and, and there's something very endearing and very different about it, and, uh, and then he never turned, seen that before. And then he turns in a performance that's kind of like Steve McQueen. Yeah. Yeah, in the end. Yeah. And that's what you liked about it. What we talked before, you said it was, it was really important, and I used it in episode six of the podcast that Steve McQueen didn't give a shit. Yeah. And Travis has that same feel about him. He really doesn't give a shit. <laughs> Travis. I mean, I got to say, he's no, and I really mean this, he's the only actor I've ever met who really doesn't care what anyone thinks about him yeah. or about his career. He just wants to make enough money to be on his ranch. And you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, he, he, he likes it, you know, but he doesn't, he's not really a movie guy. The last no, movie Travis he saw in the Travis. theater was Jackass, he said. <laughs> Which makes so really? much sense. Yeah. Last movie he saw in the theater was Jackass. He can't sit still, you know? <laughs> and so when I go, you go out and see him at his ranch, I mean, that's where he's happy, you know? And he really, honestly, you know, but it's, he's it's, also it's a job. But he's so truthful, though. Yeah. He's, a, he's really good, which is annoying. He's very good. He it's annoying. He doesn't care and doesn't prepare or whatever, which I'm not sure I totally believe, actually. Uh, okay. I think he's too good to truly not do any work on it. I think you're right. He does secret work on it. Yeah, okay. He would never tell you his accent tricks. You know, oh, he's he like too, He's cooler than that. Right. Yeah. He doesn't. Have so what tricks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, like, it's because I'm hoping he'll listen to this and go, "God damn it, Mark!" Because he's be always teasing about his accent. Oh really? Yeah. No, his accent was good. <laughs> <laughs> really, you you caught him. He's no Rachel Taylor. I'll tell you that. Now I'm going to look at the I'll movie differently. Yeah. I'll give him my, my, my spelling trick. That's how he writes anyway. That's how he spells. <laughs> right. Right, right. Purple crayon. Oh, jeez. Oh, well, you're going to get a phone call. Yeah. That's no, yeah, Travis would be like, yep, that's it. He will. He'll totally, he'll totally cop to that. And to be fair, but to give Mark some credit here, you are also very, very funny. And that, I think... Helps an actor. It helps, like you know, if people, if a director has funny in their bones, I think that helps an actor feel like they have permission and they yeah. can experiment and they, they can, can take play. risks and play. Yeah. And I've not really worked with anyone quite like that, actually. Not mm. to piss in your pocket in at that respect, but you create an environment where. You can do things that are stupid is and they're not. Is in your work. pocket a compliment? Right, right. It? Oh, okay. I'm going to look that up because that's a great phrase. I've never heard piss in there's your pocket before. There's a name for a podcast an, coming up. That's an Australian. What it means is I'm not trying to pay you too many compliments. Like, okay. Just re- like, relax. I's I'm not trying to. What be would weird. our version of that piss in your pocket? Uh, Americans are fine I'm not with compliments. To, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we are. Yeah. Australians aren't so much. So you say, no. I'm not trying to piss in your pocket, but that was really good. I'm, I'm not that, trying no. to blow... Smoke up, up your ass. ass. <laughs> there you go. That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's that. okay. uh, we've, we've crossed the international dateline with that one. <laughs> um, your favorite heist movie. Do you have one? I asked you this before, mm. and you couldn't think of one. Anthony rattled off. Well, I have, a, I have a ton, but I couldn't think of like the best, best one. Oh, okay. You go. We can't. Can I? Can I? Cannot pick this one. It's too cheesy. Yeah. Okay. Too, too, too cheesy. Um, was it Inside Man? I kind of, kind of that one. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed. That's, um, that's on our list. Mm-hmm. We, really we're we're ranking that. the the best bank heist movies of all time. Mm-hmm. It was that's also on the list. in that era of um, movie movies, mm-hmm. and just that I remember so fo- fondly. I think when it came out, I would have been maybe thirteen or fourteen or something, and that mm-hmm. was the moment where I was really devouring, starting to devour films. So maybe that's why. I think I saw it in the theater, actually. So I'm going to pin you down. What's yours? If you had to pick. I mean, I, I don't know if I could call it a... Could I call um, Heat? Yeah, it's on the list, too. It's on the list? Oh, Where yeah. is it on your list? I like really Heat. Good I, think, I think Inside Man is number four of all time, and Heat's number five. Okay. I love Heat. Well, Pacino and De Niro. I mean, come on. Yeah. I also think the town's great. Town's on the list. Oh, the town is great. It was really on the list. Yep. 
So Who's your number one? No, Butch no. Cassidy and Sundance Kid. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's damn. pretty tough yeah. to beat oh, that. Jesus. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, but we have some surprises on there. Hell or High Water. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. With everyone, everyone's always lecturing me to see Chris that movie. Pine. It's, it's supposed really to be fantastic. Good. It's really good. Taylor Sheridan's And film, uh, yeah. uh, Out of Sight. George Clooney oh, yeah, that's and a great one, Lopez too. Yeah. is really good. <clears throat> what? No, I mean, it's gr- I mean, it's great, but it's not heat. It's not heat. Yeah. No. It's higher on the list. I like it better. Oh, okay. Uh, Point Break is on there. Set It Off is on oh. there. Uh, I wish I could rattle all of them. Oh, well. So when you sat down, I told you I first started with this project 17 years ago. Mm. How did you get involved? What's the first time you heard about it? I got it from the producer, Anthony Mastromoro. He sent it to me. Um, and we were talking about a couple of different things to do, and he said, I want you to take a look at this. And... Uh, I said, and I told him I'm not a heist guy. You know what I mean? Like, I like heist films as much as anybody, but that's not my what I really do. I, I care much more uh, about relationships, and I like comedy, and I like, you know, and whatnot. And I read it, and I kind of fell in love with it. And um, so we started talking about it, and it all went, you know, went from there. Do you know what you did, the magic you had? Because I went to lunch with three or four different directors thinking that, Oh, this guy will direct the movie. Oh, mm. over the years, really. Yeah. 2005, 2008, 2011. Yeah, there are a lot of them. Yeah. What was what was the magic you had? I remember uh, the other screenwriter, Ken Hickson, told me the same thing. Right. I sat down with him and we talked about you know work on the script and he was he kind of sighed and said, "Mark, he's like you know I, I hear you, but I've been through this so many times. Right. You know, so a bunch of directors had gone in and out. I think I, I can't I, I don't can't speak for them. I don't know what their ideas are or what, but my always came back to the love story. That was the difference for me, was that if that love story didn't work, then the movie didn't work, you know? And it would be very easy to make it all about those five guys and this incredible heist, because it's an incredible story. It really is. Um, I just didn't want to tell that story. It didn't interest me as much as two people, what's going to happen? Are they going to get away? Um, starting to tell the, the, the story out of, out of time, you know, jumping around different timelines was really challenging and really interesting. I think there's five different timelines in the movie, which can be, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Because if you think about it, we open up in 1980, and he tells you, I'm not who you think I am. We go back to around 1970, and you see he hasn't made the team yet with his Mm -hmm. uncle, hasn't gotten on the crew yet. And then we jump ahead to, we meet Forrest's character and Lily, and they're investigating post the -hmm. break-in, right? So that's after the break-ins happen. Then we go back to them, you know, putting together. In in the bank, yeah. Yeah, and then them actually breaking out of the place. And then we have scenes with you two after you've been together for years. You know, you're yeah. in love and you're working on the theater together. So there's about five different timelines. That's true. And it can be very confusing, but it's like it's it's interesting to watch. You know, it keeps you on your toes. You got to follow. So, how crushed were you when the distribution deal fell apart? I remember being on this trajectory, like, wow, this is really going to happen, and this yeah. is going to be big, and this is great. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, bam. Yeah, it's devastating. You know, because sometimes you think you've done all you can, you do everything right, and just think, shit happens. You know, and uh, companies go bankrupt and fall apart. And, you know, there were a bunch of movies that were caught up w- w- with us um, in the whole uh, uh, open road slash global road um, situation. Um, and so then you just have to, you know, hope and things take longer, which is a shame. You know, because you have all this momentum and then, you know, you slam the brakes on it and, and uh, regroup. So, yeah, it was tough. It I was say tough. in the podcast that it's a little like burglarizing a bank. You have all this, these plans and you hope and you, you, you try to execute everything just the right way. Yeah. And then it doesn't go the way you thought. And you forget to run the dishwasher. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, what's Tasmania like? Uh, it's not as exotic as it sounds. Um, you know, it is... Um, I was just there actually um, a week ago, but it, it certainly transformed these days than um, what it was like when I was growing up there. Is it little town America type place? Is it big city? Is it? Is there a comparison? I don't know. My husband says, <laughs> kind of unkindly, uh, it's like if you cut out a bit of Iowa and dumped it in the middle of the ocean off the coast of California, that <laughs> that's kind of like what it's like. Because it's not how you might imagine Australia at all. Like it's not, the beaches are actually stunning, but the water is very, very cold. Mm. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not a particularly warm climate. Um, it gets to like 30 uh, Fahrenheit. Oh God. Mm. Like maybe a max of like 85 That's as hot as it gets? Something, like it just doesn't get that hot. It oh. doesn't get that cold either, but it does snow in Tasmania. Oh, wow. Um, and it's a, 
you know, it doesn't, for me, I feel more Tasmanian than I do Australian. There is a very distinct culture there that is kind of hard to put my finger on. But yeah, I was going to ask the next mm. question. What's the dif- difference What's between the difference? Tasmanian and Australian? I don't know. It's, um, it's a really lovely, strange little place. It's a I don't lovely... mean to piss in your pocket. No. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's a lovely, strange little place that um, has excellent local food and um, really interesting characters kind of dotted all over the place. It's really neat. All right, let's wrap up this way. What's next? Uh, Marco first. What, what are you going to do next? What am I going to do next? Um, I wrote and am producing a movie with Shirley MacLaine called Lucy Boomer. Shirley MacLaine? Yeah. Damn. The Damn. Shirley MacLaine? Does she dance? Uh, sh- does she dance? I saw her one woman show where she danced. Oh, wow. She, and she's incredible. Like, I don't think there's a dance here. I'm going to I'm gonna have to write one in. Yeah, there you go. Oh, um, a little tip. And that's going to shoot in June, I believe. Um, and then I have a little movie that I re- uh, rewrote and I'm directing called Patrick 1.5 that I'm hoping to be making next, which is a comedy. Um, Do you have a star? I have someone we're talking to, but okay. I won't say anything. Okay. So I'll jinx it. Okay. So that's, uh, that's, that's one of the main things right now. What about you, Rachel Taylor? Oh, Big star coming. No. Uh, <laughs> no, I have not. I have literally nothing. Um, no, no, that's I not ha- true. <laughs> that I is have, not true. I have uh, season three of Jessica Jones coming out, so that's exciting. Who knows when that will be, but I think maybe June-ish. Okay. Awesome. Based on nothing, but that I think that that will be about time. A year later, it'll probably right. come out. And that's um, it, and no. That's it. I have a movie in Australia that I just finished. Um, that was directed by Bruce Beresford, which is awesome, and it's a really charming, um, charming little story set in 1959 in in Australia. It's about these women that work in a department store, and going through the change of that moment in time, which is oh, wow. the, the end What's of the 1950s coming into the 1960s. It's called Ladies in Black. Ladies in yeah. Black. Wow. Okay. Did I leave anything out? No. Good. You got everything. Good. All right. Next time on Crime Beat Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. 16 years later, opening night. I'll talk to actors Louis Lombardi and Reese Coiro, who are both in the movie Finding Steve McQueen, and I'll take you to the premiere. The best way you can support this podcast is to give us high ratings and reviews and tell your friends to check out our work. Thanks for listening. Crime Beat Season 1 was produced by the Southern California News Group. The executive editor was Frank Pine. The senior editor was Todd Harmonson. Production and original music by Michael Crow. Sound editing by Jeff Gritchen. Graphics by Kurt Snibby. And I want to give special thanks to podcasters who inspired this work. Amy Wilson and Amber Hunt on Accused. Sarah Koenig on Serial. Brian Reed on S-Town. Chris Gofford on Dirty John, Madeline Barron on In the Dark, Nate DeMeo on The Memory Palace, and Phoebe Judge on Criminal.